Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So reading from Psalm 118, verses 19 to 29. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his love endures forever. This evening's second reading is from Zechariah chapter 9 and can be found on page 955. Page 955, reading Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The reading, which is the sort of fulfillment of the two readings that Paul read before, comes in Luke chapter 19. It's on page 1054 in the church Bibles. Page 1054, Luke 19. And we're going to begin at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. 
As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, let me pray as we uh, come to look at that together. Hard to come to an evening like that without thoughts of events across the world in Florida. Think of the earthquake in Mexico, the flooding in Bangladesh. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you know how we are formed. You remember that we are dust. Our lives flourish like a flower of the field until the wind blows over it and it is gone. And so we pray that from your eternal wisdom you would teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We know that everything that was written in the past in scripture was written to teach us. So we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit that he would instruct us now so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we live in an era when the ruling establishment, politicians, uh, journalists, academic, we live in an age when increasingly people like that police what you can and can't say in public. In last month's, month's Spectator, Madeleine Kearns writes about her recent experience of studying journalism at New York University. During my welcome week, I was presented with a choice of badges indicating my preferred gender pronouns. I could be a he, a she, a they, or a z. Uh, the student in front of me, an Australian, found this hilarious. Well, the last time I checked, I was a girl. 
that joke was met with stony silence. Later, I realized why. Expressing bewilderment at the current obsession with gender pronouns might count as microaggression. Next stop, transphobia. So even the likes of Jermaine Greer with her impeccable feminist credentials is accused of transphobia because she dared to suggest that post-operative transgender women are not women. Over 3,000 students at Cardiff University petitioned the authorities to cancel her lecture, to no-platform her, because those are not the sorts of views that people should defend in public. Now, certain views on gender and sexuality and abortion will simply not be tolerated, as the politician Jacob Rees-Mogg discovered to his cost this week. All of which, I think, has rather unsettling echoes of the thought police from George Orwell's novel, 1984. The thought police who, through the omnipresent surveillance of the state, will prosecute and punish views which are unapproved by the state. Now, the ruling establishment increasingly police what you can and can't say in public, and that is particularly true when it comes to what you can and can't say about Jesus. As the former Liberal Dem leader, Tim Farron, found out. Now, the Bible is clear that every single person, people of every religion and none, every single person is made in the image of God and is of immense value. They're to be treated with love and kindness and compassion, and yet they all need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And they all need to put their faith and trust in him. Now that view is the orthodox Christian position of over 2,000 years, and yet the leading Democrat politician Bernie Saunders, who, who lost out to Hillary Clinton in the nomination, Bernie Saunders described the Orthodox Christian position as indefensible and hateful. Now that you can champion diversity, inclusivity and tolerance and then describe Orthodox Christianity as indefensible is an irony that is apparently lost on Mr. Saunders. But the truth is that for many people, Orthodox Christian teaching is now indefensible. If you're at school, it will meet with the scorn of your teachers. If you're studying at university, it will be met with the derision of your lecturers. And amongst unbelieving friends and family, at best it will be a laughing matter, at worst it will be nothing other than contempt. As a friend of mine put it after I tried to explain something of what the Bible teaches, and I always thought you were a reasonable sort of Christian. Not that there's anything new in people's attempts to silence the followers of Jesus. Truth is that some people see Jesus and seem compelled to speak out, and some people seem threatened by Jesus and want to silence him and his followers. And so it is in Luke 19. 
Luke 18, 19, as we picked up Luke last week, is really a sort of turning point in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 18 and verse 31, you see that Jesus begins his final approach to Jerusalem. Again, Jesus explains to his followers that his journey to Jerusalem will be a fulfillment of all that God has promised, that he will be betrayed and persecuted and killed, and on the third day he will be raised. And it's a prediction that leaves the disciples completely bewildered and confused. They seem to see Jesus and yet not see him. But then something happens as Jesus travels into Jerusalem, an event that seems to open the eyes of the disciples and at the same time blind the eyes of the religious establishment. And so as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, chapter 19 and verse 28, we see the first thing from this passage, the king who comes to die is sovereign over time and circumstances. The king who comes to die is sovereign over time and circumstances. You see it in the first place in what you might term a small canvas. It's like a small etching by a great artist that sits alongside one of her great paintings. Approaching Bethphage and Bethany, Jesus sends two of his disciples on ahead to secure travel arrangements for his arrival into the city, verse 30. Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. A king coming to the ancient city of Jerusalem to be betrayed, tortured and killed. It doesn't sound like a triumph, but a tragedy. Jesus, not a victor, but a victim. Yet what is remarkable is that down to the smallest detail, the disciples find that verse 32. It was just as he told them. And not just the location of this young donkey, but even the question of its owners, verse 33. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? Then you'd ask the same question, wouldn't you? Now, if somebody sidled up to your house and helped yourself to a valuable piece of property, you want to know what was going on. Why are you untying it? And the disciples' doubtless tentative, unbelieving reply, verse 34, the Lord needs it. You know, at best you'd be expecting a roar of incredulous laughter and at worst to be set upon by a group of locals who don't take kindly to theft with pious justification. But it seems that the answer of verse 34 was all that was required. The Lord needs it. Four words. No discussion. The donkey's theirs. It's crazy. You enter a random town, you find a random donkey, and you secure the unsolicited permission from its random owners, and all of it is just as Jesus told them. For the king who comes to die is sovereign over time and circumstance. And if that's true in this small sketch, it's also true on the large canvas of history. Now, way back in Luke, right at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he announces from the Old Testament scriptures that he was the spirit-anointed king who would come and preach the good news. 
free the prisoners, give sight to the blind, release the oppressed, and now securing a donkey in such remarkable circumstances, it's as if so many of the pieces of the past few years begin to fall into place for the disciples. For the Old Testament prophet Zechariah spoke of the coming of God's king to Jerusalem, bringing salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. And it's as if the disciples suddenly see it, that he is God's king. He's on a donkey, he's heading to Jerusalem. And so with the psalmist, verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was just as the Lord had said on the small canvas and the large, in the details of a first century donkey and in the promises of a 600 year old prophet, for the king who comes to die is sovereign over time and circumstance. Truth is that sometimes life can be very difficult, bewildering, confusing, painful. I certainly was for the disciples in Luke 18. They had seen Jesus' miracles. They'd been captivated by his teaching. They had experienced the wonder of his kindness and his love. And then all of a sudden, he's heading into Jerusalem to be betrayed and tortured and killed. And none of it made any sense at all. And then here, in the fulfillment of God's promises, there is a glimpse of a king who is sovereign over time and circumstances, and so they rejoiced. You know, sometimes for any of us, life can be incredibly difficult, confusing, bewildering, unbearably painful. You ask the victims of the hurricane that breathes across Florida today, or those many families bereaved in the floods in Bangladesh. And you know, there are very real difficulties for Christians in trying to make sense of that kind of suffering and sadness. They're difficult intellectual questions. Why suffering? Difficult personal questions. Why my suffering? There are real difficulties for Christians in trying to make sense of life's suffering and sadness, but you need to be clear. The questions do not go away if you remove God from the equation. If there is no God, if there is no deity to rail against, if there is no divine ruler to question, if life is just stuff plus time plus chance, well, then the very best that you can hope for is that Lady Luck will deal you a pleasant and not a painful hand. As the actor Tom Hiddleston put it, it is impossible to go through life without experiencing its random cruelty. It is impossible to go through life without experiencing its random cruelty. And in a godless universe of stuff plus time plus chance, that really is all that you have left, isn't it? Random cruelty? 
But Luke 19 is a remember that however confusing life might be, and whatever difficult questions might remain, life isn't random. It is ruled for the king who comes to die is sovereign over time and circumstances. You know, it's very easy to be happy, smiley people on a Sunday. But I know that some of you come here this evening like the psalmist saying, my soul is weary with sorrow. Maybe the sorrow of a broken relationship. Maybe the disappointment of exam results in a church family where everyone else seems to get A's. Maybe it's the relentless strain of ill health as it is for a couple of friends of ours as they approach the end of their life. Maybe it's the tears shed over a wayward son. Maybe the black dog of depression that seems to hound you every day of your life. And in all of it, in all of it is the troubling question, why? Why this? Why now? Why me? And yet the truth of it is that none of us really see enough of life to make sense of it, do we? We, we don't know the end from the beginning. We don't know the reasons, the wherefores, the whys. We, we just don't have enough pieces of the jigsaw. But as the writer of Hebrews might put it, but we do see Jesus. The king who came to die. And we see in his life a king who is sovereign over time and circumstances. A king who we can trust to bring good even from sorrow. A king who rules for our good and his glory. And so even in sorrow we can rejoice the end of verse 37. The whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet actually Luke 19 makes it clear that whilst some look at Jesus and see a sovereign savior, others look at Jesus and see a problematic preacher. Jesus, it seems, was a remarkably divisive person. Now, of course, people divide over all sorts of things. If you announce to your friends that you are a Marmite-loving, Brexit-supporting, Corbyn-admiring, Bake Off-hating, Justin Bieber-adoring, Sheffield Wednesday-supporter, you will probably have upset more people than Piers Morgan. But you know, no one divides opinion quite like Jesus. You see, the disciples see Jesus as God's promised king and they praise God with a loud voice. But verse 39, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, they see Jesus and they want to silence his followers. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Some things never change. Then as now, people want to police what you can and can't say about Jesus. 
Yet it seems astonishing, doesn't it? Astonishing that some people should regard Jesus and his genuine followers as a threat. You know, how is that possible? A preacher who captivated hearts and minds, a healer who restored broken bodies and healed troubled minds. He had none of the trappings of power and status and influence. He was, he was born in a cow shed. And this king rides to his coronation not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Not to a throne, but to a cross. And yet, somehow, he is a threat, and so he and his followers must be silenced, verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, if it's true that Jesus is sovereign over time and circumstance, the second thing to note from this passage is that you cannot silence the praise of Jesus. You cannot silence the praise of Jesus. And so Jesus, astonishing words in verse 40. I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Most of the 20th century, the Soviet authorities suppressed and persecuted Christians. Christianity was mere myth and superstition, the opiate of the masses, a dangerous and damaging ideology that needed to be crushed. And the statistics are dizzying. Millions and millions of Christian believers were killed in state-sanctioned persecution. As the imprisoned and tortured Romanian pastor Richard Verbrandt put it, not only were clergymen put in jail, but also simple peasants, young boys and girls who witnessed for their faith. The prisons were full. And in Romania, as in all communist countries, to be in prison means to be tortured. But the truth is, you cannot silence the praise of Jesus. In the mid-1990s, I traveled to Western Siberia to give some talks at a Christian student conference. Students had journeyed from all over Siberia, some from as far away as Yakutsk in the east. A three-day journey to where we were in the west from an area of Siberia where the temperature can be as low as minus 40 for months and months on end. I remember asking rather foolishly one of the students what they did sport-wise. He said, oh, we never go outside. (laughs) These students gather together in western Siberia in a once- spectacular but now dilapidated conference centre. I've seen a fair few conference centres, and in its heyday, this must have been very impressive. But the glory of the venue had long since faded. Walls were crumbling. The heating system was broken. We shared one intermittently flushing toilet between about 40 people. I remember eating boiled eggs served on ashtrays in a canteen where water from the leaking roof ran down the flexes of the light fittings. At the conference center was a former Soviet Soviet pioneer camp. Uh, Pioneer camps were communist youth camps where members of the Communist Party sent their young people to learn more of a godless revolutionary vision for their country. 
but you cannot silence the praise of Jesus. And in the ruins of this building, the stones cried out. I remember Christian students gathering from across this vast and beautiful country and they sat in the main auditorium built for the propagation of atheism and communism and I looked out on young men and women with Bibles open who had come from the ruins of communism to listen to the words of God's promised king. And so you know there is encouragement for us. There is encouragement because whether you face the scorn of your school teachers or the derision of your lecturers or the laughter of your friends and family, you cannot silence the praise of Jesus. And whatever lies ahead for believers in this country, whatever the state says you can and can't say about Jesus, know that if we are silent the stones will one day cry out that God's promised King, Jesus, really is Lord. Of course, some people are divisive and they seem to take pleasure in it, whereas Jesus is divisive and it seems for him a source of terrible sorrow, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And and the sense is of a kind of chest heaving sobbing as he approached the city he wept over and said if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes as some praised Jesus with a loud voice Some wanted to silence him and his followers, but to the one who came to seek and to save the lost, any rejection of him was a sort of great sadness, not satisfaction. Why? Because those who reject Jesus reveal a heart that prefers enmity with God rather than peace. And in the end, God will give them and us what we want. Verse 43, Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I hear Jesus speaks of God's judgment on Jerusalem in the first century but it's an anticipation of God's judgment on the whole earth at the end of all the centuries and then as now Jesus warning there is actually within it an appeal for the king who comes to die remains offers the offer of peace remains now peace was the cry of the angels that heralded Christ's birth Peace was the cry of Jesus as he approaches his death. Verse 42, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace. But if Jesus' offer of peace is rejected, what more can God do than give you what you want? And it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet if in Jesus' warning there is an appeal, there is in Jesus' tears an amazing encouragement. For the king who comes to die came to seek and to save the lost and his love 
and his compassion and his tears for the lost are far greater and far more tenacious than ours. So maybe for you, you think of your unbelieving parents or you think of your dear friends who are so anti-Christ or you think of your skeptical spouse or you think of your prodigal sons or daughters those who you love and long to see trust Christ remember the Savior's tears and know that his love and his compassion and his care are greater and more tenacious than yours and so there is great hope Shall we pray? Some words from the psalm that Paul read earlier. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen.